The college football playoff is set. The college basketball world continues to evolve in unforeseen manners. And there's still pro sports to talk about, too. And what better way to celebrate it than by having the Minnesota Miracle Man himself on the show. Noah, how you doing, my friend? Liam, it, it feels like it's been about, like, how many weeks at this point? It's been, like, we like five weeks since we set up a time and then got set back and set up another time. Needless to say, I'm glad to be on the Full Court Press podcast uh, and ready to break down college football, basketball, uh, and everything in between. Yeah, like we alluded to, we do have a packed show tonight, including Purdue's loss, Seton Hall, the NFC East. But we begin today with the biggest news of the past week. After weeks of deliberation, the college football playoff is finally set, and it stands as such. Bama number one, Michigan number two, Georgia number three, the Cincinnati Bearcats, the first group of five school to ever make the college football playoff, at number four. So, Noah, I'll keep it simple to start. Did the committee get it right? Uh, Not only did they get it right, Liam, but I am elated. I am somebody who, since the beginning of the year, have been touting the Cincinnati uh, Bearcats as a team that not only did I think they could impress, but a team that I thought could make the college football playoff. And they've done that. It, it's it's not only big for the city of Cincinnati, but you think about it, the UCFs, you think about past schools, some of those fringe group of five programs, BYU. This is massive. This is a landmark occasion for all non-Power 5 schools, really, the fact that it's possible. Did they need help? for it to happen absolutely you had a down year from clemson uh you had a down year from the pac-12 i'm elated by the play of cincinnati though and they really earned it uh all season long so i was happy with that i, I think the only thing you can kind of poke holes in is which way do you reorder it because you look at that top four it goes alabama michigan georgia cincinnati cincinnati is 13 and 0 do they really deserve to be the four seed like that's really the big thing in my mind, but I also think there are some matchups that play into that. I don't think there's any way in the universe the committee was going to pair up Georgia versus Alabama again in the semifinals. So these were the rankings I expected, uh, and I think they were the right decisions, Liam. Okay, I agree with you for the most part. I I'm going to be totally honest, I don't see the logic putting Cincinnati anywhere but four simply because they haven't had the competition that Bama, Michigan, and Georgia have had at this point in time. But, hey, they're about to get Alabama, so all bets are off at this point. And, you know, to your point about Cincinnati, how, like, they needed help, I want to point to one game that really determined who that four seed was going to be. It's when the Bearcats went into South Bend and defeated the Notre Dame Fighting Irish in a place that is almost impossible for any team to win, let alone a group of five team. I mean, the only schools I would pick to go into South Bend and win are, you know, the Clemsons, the Bamas, the Georgias of the world. So that win right there really elevated the Bearcats into the playoff, and I think it was the determining factor because, unless I'm mistaken, the Irish were number five, or it might have been Ohio State, I'm not entirely sure. but No, it, it was Notre Dame. Okay. All right, just had to make sure. But, I mean, I think the committee got it right, and I agree with you as well that there was no chance that the committee was going to have 
Alabama versus Georgia again. I don't yeah. really see the logic putting Michigan ahead of Georgia, but that's just that's really nitpicky at this point. I mean, that it's. I think that Georgia is a better team than Michigan, but it's one of those scenarios where it's like, all right, you have two 12 and one teams. One's a conference champion, one isn't. And I think at the end of the day, when they're going to be playing each other, no matter what, they probably weren't deliberating over that decision too much. I'm so, sure. is I mean, Georgia a better team than Michigan? I think absolutely. Um, but it should be a fun matchup. It's like I said, nitpicky. So before we move on to basketball, gun to your head, who's winning the national championship? So if you asked me about a week and a half ago, I would have pretty confidently said Alabama because I'm not a huge believer in Michigan, to be honest. They've got Aiden Hutchinson, that great defense, but uh, outside of Haskins, the wonderful running back for the, uh, the Wolverines, not much going there. Uh, and then Alabama, I, I, they had struggled down the stretch. So, you know, you watch that game against Auburn, you were like, I don't think it's the same uh, Crimson Times Tide squad that we had seen in the past. But after the championship matchups, it's got to be Bama. I love Cincinnati, and I'm glad they're in the playoff. They're going to get rolled over by a Bama offense that's actually a lot better than people are giving it credit for. Uh, Nick Saban always has his squad going. So I think Alabama rolls over Cincinnati. And, you know, I do think it's going to be a a rematch of the SEC championship. It's going to be Bama, Georgia, uh, and gun to my head. I'm taking Bama. Nick Saban, one of the greatest, if not the greatest college football coach of all time, gets it done again. I don't see how you can make any logic for someone other than Saban. That's just me. Yeah. But my thing is, is that, and I learned this lesson really to the throttle last week, it is hard to beat a team twice in a year. Just ask Oklahoma State, right? Yeah. So I think yeah. Georgia's going to take care of Michigan. I think Bama's, as much as I would love to see the Bearcats pull it off, I think Bama's going to take care of them without much difficulty. And then, you know, again, that's where the twice-a-year factor comes in. I have a hard time thinking that Georgia is going to lose to Bama twice in one year so i'm rolling with the dogs who let the dogs out baby yeah and before we wrap up this discussion real quick not only is it like the beating a team two times a year but i think a big thing with georgia is their defense is unmatched they didn't look great against bama but that's because they were on the field a lot when you're led by linebackers like nicobe dean and uh, really a loaded defense i think they can make up for that it's on offense and if JT Daniels comes in instead of Stetson Bennett, who's played most of the year because Daniels has been hurt, I think that could make the difference. And Daniels actually suited up in that SEC championship game, uh, decided not to play him in that one. But I wouldn't be surprised if you saw him in the semifinal, and I think he can bring a dim- another dimension to the offense. Uh, so I think that's another thing going in the favor of Georgia, potentially upsetting Bama and winning you know, a, a national championship for the first time in this current iteration of the SEC that's been dominated. Yeah, because I'm going to be honest with you. When you tell you say the name Stetson Bennett, one word comes to mind, and that word is average. But moving yeah. on to yeah, I, yeah, he is. college basketball, the, the rankings were shook once again on Thursday when Rutgers upset Purdue on a crazy buzzer beater by Ron Harper Jr. So... We've had a bunch of number ones at this point, three to be exact, Gonzaga, Duke, and Purdue. The latter two have lost it within 
a week of reaching that top spot. So back to Purdue, though. That was a one of the best games of the season so far. Did Rutgers win it or did Purdue lose it? I mean, you got to give credit it where credit is due in this one and the credit goes to Rutgers are they you know one of the premier squads in the big 10 absolutely not nor do I think necessarily that they'll even make the tournament but they had a clear advantage in that game due to the environment that they created uh that game being in New Jersey so I, I think that Rutgers you know they they certainly do deserve uh, the respect should be given to them, especially Ron Harper Jr. Everybody's going to be talk about that, you know, crazy, crazy uh, half-court shot, basically, that he banked in. And if you haven't seen it, go look it up. It's pretty miraculous. Uh, but he played an entire game in which he balled out 10 of 15 from the field, 30 points, 10 rebounds. He's a guy that's been there forever, of course, uh, the son of a certain Bulls legend, but Ron Harper Jr. Been a baller for Rutgers and definitely deserves his due diligence in this win against Purdue. Uh, and I think it speaks to a larger point that you're kind of getting to, Liam, and that's the fact that there's not a consensus clear number one in college basketball. I think you can look at Purdue, you can look at Gonzaga, you can look at Duke, you can look at Baylor. There's probably four or five, even six schools that you can argue is the number one team in the country. And as a college basketball, like nerd, total college basketball junkie, that gets me excited because I'm thinking towards the rest of the season, towards March Madness, knowing that there's not a team that is quote unquote, supposed to run through everything. This is about as much parody as we've seen in college basketball recently. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. Purdue's still a great squad, still might be the number one team in the country, but nothing comes easy in college basketball, Liam. Okay, I'm going to give Rutgers their credit. I mean, yeah, I still think they're a good team. I mean, they're not what they were last year, but this team what this team should have made the Sweet 16 last year. Let's be honest. They should not have lost to Houston. They really choked that game away, if I'm being brutally honest. So, still a solid team, but I would like to voice my displeasure towards one Jaden Ivey. This kid is supposed oh. to be one of the – Hot shots of college basketball this season, right? I understand how you can play 34 minutes of the game and only take nine shots when your name is that high up on the prestige level. I just don't get it. So I think he needs to be more aggressive going forward, and I think that costs Purdue in this game. I mean, you have to run your offense through your star player, and I mean, no disrespect to this kid Trevion Williams who had 21 and 11 off the bench. But he's not Jaden Ivey. I, I mean, with all due respect, Travion Williams was an all Big Ten player a year ago. Um, Why is he coming off the bench then? Uh, frankly, I, I, I honestly have no idea. Um, Travion Williams is one of the best forwards in the Big Ten. Uh, he is a beast. And the thing I will say about Ivey, which I'm not, you know, saying that his performance, the fact that he didn't have the type of games that like you said, he's a guy that all season long leading into the season, people have been talking about, you know, Jaden Ivey, he's going to be explosive. Uh, but you look at his freshman season last year, he's a guy that was so hot and cold. He's a freak athlete. He can shoot the lights out, but with the keywords at times. Jaden Ivey is someone that at times is, you know, the hottest scorching man on earth, especially from distance, but at times goes cold. So he's only a sophomore. He's still getting used to it. But 
when you look at the whole Purdue, you know, supporting squad between Stefan Stefanovic, one of the many, you know, three-point snipers that Purdue has had at its disposal, Matt Painter has brought into West Lafayette, combine them with Travion Williams, Zach Eady, I got to think that they're going to get it together. And the fact that they lost a road, a true road Big Ten game because of a buzzer beater that banked in, I'm not calling it a fluke on Rutgers' end because they truly did win this game, uh, but I'm not pressing the panic button if I'm Purdue. Oh, I don't think anyone is pressing the panic button, but and, and like you said, it is one game, but at the same time, it is suspicious, let's just call it. Yeah, no, I, I would totally agree. All right, now let's move on to one of the most underappreciated teams in college basketball, in my opinion. The Seton Hall Pirates, shout out to Hari Long, reserve guard, hurt right now, but Episcopal High School alumnus. The Pirates have now accumulated two top ten victories over the first few weeks of the season. You go back to November, they beat fourth-ranked Michigan in a neutral environment game, and then seventh-ranked Texas came to the Prudential Center this past Thursday, and Seton Hall got it done. They won 64-60, to so are we sleeping on them, Noah? I mean, I think anytime you beat two top 10 teams to start the season, especially for a squad like Seton Hall, that I didn't see anybody projecting the Pirates to be, uh, you know, a sleeper squad, a dark horse, even in the Big East. Uh, I think, like you said, Liam, we've got to give them their due respect. The fact that you beat a squad like Michigan, a beat a squad like Texas, which both those two teams have big things in common, and that's that maybe they don't have it all together yet. And I think both teams will be a heck of a lot better two months from now than they are now. But both squads are absolutely loaded with talent. And when you can shut down that just pure basketball talent, that's impressive from Seton Hall. Uh, you know, a guy like Jared Roden, 17 points per game he's averaging right now as a guard. But the key thing, Liam, is he's also averaging seven rebounds a game, which, which kind of pops off the page and shows kind of what, not only scoring presence he can bring to the table, but also the rebounding and overall team effort he can bring to Seton Hall. They also bring Kadari Richmond in from Syracuse playing very good defense. I think Seton Hall is maybe not a team that I think is a top 25 team in the country yet, although they could be ranked there soon with their two top 10 wins. Uh, I think they're a squad that when you're looking at the Big East after Villanova, who's next? And when you're looking at who's next, why not Seton Hall? That's the way I look at it. So the thing that strikes me the most about Seton Hall is their tremendous depth. They have seven players averaging at least eight points per game. And you throw in Kadari Richmond, that's eight averaging at least six. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's not something you see often in college basketball. That's not something you see in basketball, period, for that matter. I mean, very few NBA teams can boast seven players averaging eight plus. So I think that speaks to how great their depth is, like you mentioned. And, you know, like you said, there's no reason they can't be in the fight with Seton Hall, or excuse me, in the fight for that second tier of the Big East under Villanova. Dare I say it, they might even take a shot at the Wildcats if they keep beating top 10 teams the way they have at this point. And if the Wildcats keep losing to top 10 teams, I mean, what, they've lost to... Purdue and UCLA at this point in time, and granted, those are two I, I really mean, good to schools. Be fair, but those are two top five squads. Yeah, they are, but at the same time, Villanova is 
ability to perform in big games has to be questioned, and we'll get into this a little bit later. Yeah, I think that I still put Nova Miles beyond Seton Hall, but so if you I. want to look behind so that, uh, it's like, who's next in the Big East? You saw Marquette get a win against Illinois, but an Illinois team without Kofi Coburn because he was suspended. Uh, a lot of people talk about Creighton, what they've brought in, kind of a, a mini rebuild they're undergoing. Overall, though, nothing is that impressive. So I think Seton Hall is right there in terms of the Big East. And they're a team that I could easily see being an 8-9 seed when we're talking March and a dangerous 8-9 seed at that. So uh, I think they've certainly, you know, appeared on my radar of late, not a team I thought was going to be that great. Uh, but you mentioned their depth, their talent, their overall grit on the court. Uh, I like the Pirates and we will be watching them the rest of the year. Noah, you forgot one critical Big East team. I mean, do you know who you're talking to here? I mean, Who am I, talking I don't, don't understand. Don't, don't say Rhode Island. Rhode Island's not in the Big East. A-10. Providence is in the Big East, though. How about Providence the Friars? Is. Yes, URI is in the A-10. But, look, the Friars are 9-1. and one. They have beaten URI. They have beaten Wisconsin, who, by the way, is top 25. And they have beaten Texas Tech, who, oh, by the way, was in the national championship just a few years ago. So, I'm not, again, I'm not putting them in the same class as Villanova or Seton Hall, but... Don't sleep on Ed Cooley's boys, Noah, is all I'll say. No, Providence, I, I here, I, as much as I want to push back, I will give you credit for the Friars for the fact that it's another team in the Big East that has a lot of depth. Four guys averaging in the double digits for points, and that makes you so much harder to stop when you go through the season. But I think that when we're talking about college basketball or any basketball for that matter, the importance of having a guy on the squad that when you're – in, you know, prime time, 30 seconds left, you, you need a clutch bucket that you can go to. That is integral on any basketball squad that's going to be successful and move beyond being just, uh, you know, a tournament qualifying team. So when I'm looking at Providence, I don't know that they have that guy that I've seen yet. Um, so not, that, on the Watson, the not on the Nate Watson hype train yet? Not really. N- not really. All right. Shout out Bryson Goodine, though, really lighting it up there, former Syracuse Orange. Very much. Two points per game. He's doing, yeah, he's doing that's great. Yeah, that's a real jaw-dropping number. All right, well, <laughs> we've teased the past few weeks or so in college basketball, so let's get right into it. Who's the number one team in the country right now? So I think there are a lot of ways you can go with this. Like I said, everybody's got their answer on who the best team in the country is. Uh and I think it's truly a tough thing to look at. But when I'm looking at everybody, the one team I'm going to go to is Baylor. It's the defending national champions. Not only are they undefeated on the year, but you got to give a you got to give truly a great hands clap to what the Baylor Bears have been able to accomplish. Scott Drew, one of the best coaches in all of the country. They lose multiple NBA draft picks, NBA-level guys, and what do they do? They come out and ball out automatically. It's guys like not only Matthew Mayer, somebody who's been around the program for a while, uh, can really shoot the three ball, but also guys like James Akinjo, I believe I'm saying that correctly, uh, some of their guards who have been fantastic, Kendall Brown, 
somehow, some way, the Bears have been able to develop a pipeline where, you know, we're going to lose some great guards to the NBA draft. We're also going to bring some great guards in. So uh, they kind of have that mix of guys who, you know, either come in as freshmen or like Kenjo come from other power programs. He came from Arizona in this instance uh, and was an all Pac-12 first team player. Uh, not only do they have that, those sorts of guys, but they also have veterans like Flo Thamba, who I can recall playing Syracuse years ago in the NCAA tournament. Oh, that's going Someone way back. has been around college basketball for a while. So I'm going to go with Baylor. I don't know that they're the best team in the country, but people need to stop sleeping on the Bears. They're defending national champs. They have one of the best coaches in the country, and this roster is a heck of a lot better than people will give it credit for. I mean, I agree with you. How can it not be Baylor? I, I don't really like the Bears for reasons I'm not going to get into, but, I mean, you can't deny this team – you have to give credit to Scott Drew because he has just reloaded after losing all that talent to the draft, like you mentioned. And he's brought in the new set of guys. This is how we're going to do things. And for the most part, they've been successful at it. Their leading scorer, LJ Cryer, by the way, a KD Texas native, not too far outside Houston, played left bench last year and is the team's leading scorer with over 15 a game. That's not something you see every day. You have this guy who doesn't really play much his freshman year, but comes in his sophomore year and just completely takes over, dominates the floor for the Bears. I mean, and again, they haven't exactly been playing the best competition. I mean, they won the battle for Atlantis, but I don't think the talent pool was that great there, if I'm being brutal, with the exception of Auburn and UConn, neither of whom they had to play. But Arkansas Pine Bluff. Yeah, that's a real top-tier opponent. But again, I think they're the, I think they're the best team in the country right now. Will we be able to say the same after Sunday? Who knows? It will certainly be interesting, but I'd like to give the fat asterisks like I did earlier in the show, Liam, the fact that Purdue is one, but there's also a 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D, 1E. There's no consensus number one in the country talent-wise, and I think it'll be a revolving door all season long. All right. Well, you know, the I'm trying to figure out the right way to transition this. College basketball, you know, there's a lot of diff- interesting elements to, to, to deal with. The one element they don't have to deal with, weather. And you want to know how grateful they are to not have to deal with weather? Just ask Mac Jones, Josh Allen, and the Patriots and Bills. In the, I don't know what you want to call it, monsoon, thunderstorm, blizzard, windstorm, take your word, but the conditions in Buffalo were nasty for Monday Night Football, Monday night, and the Patriots... Passed the ball all of three times. Kicks were sailing left and right. and It was just ugly football to watch. So, do you like these wacky weather games? And this this doesn't have to apply for football. and It can apply to baseball for all we care. Absolutely. Uh, I I mean, and Liam, you have to understand who your audience is in this instance. I'm a born and bred Minnesotan, which we may get into later in the show. Uh, I like the wacky weather games. I think that... At least for me personally, I'm not from the Northeast. I don't have any personal stake in a Buffalo Bills, New England Patriots matchup. But when I see on Twitter that the field goal posts are quite literally moving back and forth, like those weird, like inflatable things you see at car dealerships, 
uh, I'm interested. So I, I think that if I'm a fan of either of the teams, I'm like, heck no, uh, absolutely not. Um, and I know that, you know, it ended up looking pretty good for you. Um, but uh, I, I think that for the fan that's not emotionally invested in the game, it's amazing because you're like, I get to watch this, you know, cluster of whatever unfold in front of my eyes. And I don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, even for the emotionally invested fan in some circumstances, I like it. And the reason I said you can throw any other sport in there is because back in April, when baseball season was just getting going, when Miggy Cabrera hit an opening day bomb through a snow shower I mean, that was, that was incredible. And yeah, uh, there was a game the Red Sox played the Twins in Minnesota. Hunter Renfro hit a ball while it was snowing out of the yard, which was, which was one of my favorite moments of the season. And, and like you said, it was uh, going into the game, I was like, eh, I'm glad I'm not there because if it were not a school night, chances are I would have been there. So, I mean, I can imagine it being brutal for – fans at the game and players and coaches involved, but watching it on screen, you can't help but enjoy it. Yeah, it's, I, I think that if nothing else, it's absolutely absurd and absolutely unique. There's not many, too many of those games that you get very often. It's like the Cowboys Packers old playoff matchup, uh, you know, where they're playing in the frozen tundra of Green Bay, Lambeau Field, kind of have that whole Chris Berman narrative. Um, I, I think those games are fun, and I enjoy them. I, I, I enjoy them, at least. Oh, well, I mean, I don't know if we're going to see someone like that at all anytime soon, but have some respect for the wacky weather games, people. All right, let's move on. The This is the weakest American football conference I've seen in a long time. So, looking at it right now, as I accidentally click on the Vikings game from last night, which I'm sure we'll get into, you got New England at 1, Tennessee at 2, Baltimore at 3, Kansas City at 4, and LA, Cincinnati, Buffalo at 5, 6, 7. So, the Patriots are 9 and 4 and are on bye this week. Tennessee, Baltimore, and KC are all 8 and 4, but the Chargers, Bengals, and Bills are all 7 and 5. Noah, the overarching thing here for me is that I see a glaring hole in each and every one of these teams. And I, I do. So when you think about all of that, who is the who would you pay to come out of the AFC if the season ended today? Because it's about as wide open as I can remember it. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head right there, Liam. There's certainly not a single team that you could point to which means there's probably seven teams you could point to at the same time i'm gonna still go with the kansas city chiefs and i might fall on my sword here uh at some point down the line but it's a team that's seemingly starting to kind of figure it out winning five in a row and a lot of people are talking about you know the play of pat mahomes what's wrong with the chiefs because this is a guy that got handed essentially the keys to kansas city for the next 10 years uh, and told that, you know, he was going to be the leader of this squad, yet he throws 12 interceptions early in the year. I'm not worried about that. I, I think that he's still an all-world quarterback. He's still a guy that 
I'm impressed with and his play recently combined with the fact that, you know, clicking maybe a little bit more, uh, kind of knocking the rust off with Tyreek Hill, uh, with guys like Travis Kelsey, also getting Clyde Edwards a layer back. I think that's, that's going to be huge for this offense. That's why I like the Chiefs going forward. I will say, however, the defense, there's no reason for optimism there all season long. People have talked about Daniel Sorensen as kind of like uh, the butt of every jokes when it comes to the Chiefs defense. Uh, but the Chiefs defense as a whole, it's not good. It's really not good at all. And it's a reason why, you know, I, I certainly doubt them. And you can poke a lot of holes in their game. Um, but due to the fact that, in my opinion, they have the best quarterback in the league right now, I'm still going with Kansas City, Liam. All right, Noah. So if I sat here and told you that Kansas City's defense giving up 39 points over a four-game span and you telling me that Kansas City's defense is bad, then what qualifies as good defense these days? Because 39 points over a four-game stretch seems pretty good to me. I don't care that they're playing the Aaron Rodgers, those Packers. I don't care that they're playing the train wreck of a Raiders team. I don't care that they're playing the Broncos who can't find a quarterback. If your defense is that good for that long of a period of time, they're a force to be reckoned with. Oh, and you know the other team I didn't mention? The Dallas Cowboys, who have one of the best offenses in the National Football League. So I don't want to hear any of your junk about Kansas City having a bad defense because it's just not true. And I hate to say this, they I agree with you that they're the favorites to come out of the AFC, but stop it with the defense. This is a really good unit, but... My concern it's not is, really good. Liam, don't. How are the, how are the, I, I, understand, I, I understand that they've played well recently. I understand that. And, and I don't think that they are all-world bad like they were at the beginning of the year. But if you want to talk about the last four games, we also got to talk about, you know, the first five games in the year where they were getting lit up every single game. It's they weren't really healthy. They t- weren't healthy. It's been, Liam, it's been a tale of two halves of the first two-thirds, half of the year for that Chiefs defense. So the difference is going to be which version of the Chiefs defense shows up down the stretch. Which version of the defense shows up in the playoffs? It's the one if it's the one you're talking about, there's no reason to think that they aren't the favorite to make the Super Bowl out of the AFC, but I'm just saying there's plenty of reason to still be worried. And I think the recent sample size is good, but it's not everything. Okay, so I'll throw you this. I mean, their schedule is absolutely backload. I mean, you've got the train wreck Vegas Raiders. You've got the inconsistent L.A. Chargers. You've got the bad on offense Pittsburgh Steelers. You've got the Bengals. Okay, that's a good team. That's a good test. And you've got the Denver Broncos who don't have a quarterback. So, I mean, yeah, like you said, that's where they're going to be tested. But give them the credit they deserve, Noah, is all I'll say. But, I mean... I really, and again, I don't like saying this, but I think the Chiefs are the favorites at this point in time. But don't sleep on those Pats, though, baby. I, th- and that's completely fair. And I think it's funny because when Bill Belichick went ahead and drafted Mac Jones, everybody was kind of like, oh, this is going to be Tom Brady 2.0. He's going to take this young quarterback under his arms and he's going to develop him. And that's exactly what's happened. I think Mac Jones still certainly has a lot of growing to do. What did he do? Throw the football four times three, and, or three. three times, three times in that wacky weather game we talked about. Um, but I, I will say, give a lot of credit to Bill Belichick and what he's doing. A lot of people were sleeping on the Patriots. It, it's definitely time to wake up on things like that. Anyway. There we go. There we go. We got at Indy Buffalo, 
Jacksonville, and then at Miami. Here we yeah. go. All right, so moving, flipping things over to the NFC, we've got two topics here. And we start with a team we mentioned earlier, the Dallas Cowboys. And people were saying, oh, they're runaway favorites to win the NFC East. Hold your horses because Taylor Heineke and the Washington football team are on a four-game winning streak. And you will never guess who Taylor Heineke and the Washington football team welcome to FedEx Field this weekend. The Dallas Cowboys. Mm. So mm. that's that's one of the games I've got my eye on this weekend. So, I mean, is the NFC East back in play for them? I mean, uh, let's be honest, Liam. The NFC East is always in play. It just is. It's always a division that goes down to the wire. And I think when you look at the fact that they're only two games back and they have that matchup with Dallas this weekend. They've got two matches with Dallas left. Yeah, they they and a little sidebar. I don't know if you noticed this, but Washington has the most absurd end of the schedule ever. They only play divisional opponents and they play Cowboys, Eagles, Cowboys, Eagles, Giants. What? What? <laughs> What was that scheduling by the NFL? Anyway, I, I suppose it plays in their favor when we're talking about uh, their divisional hopes because Taylor Heineke, he's not been perfect, but he's gotten the job done. And, you know, when we want to talk about defenses, this is a defense that can get the job done in Washington. Not only, It's not even just the Chase Young show. Uh, Riverboat Ron has developed a solid squad there in Washington that can do a lot of great things. So uh, I think that Washington, they've definitely got a shot against the Cowboys team that has definitely struggled. Uh, We talked about the struggles against the Chiefs defense, who I'm not buying into. Uh, And I think that they've certainly got a shot in the NFC East. Uh, So it'll be interesting. These next five games are literally do or die because they're only against divisional opponents. But I think that weird things always happen in the NFC East uh, and Washington. While I don't really think they jump off the page, why not Washington? You look at the squad and it's like, why not? They've got weapons on offense. They got weapons on defense. They're not perfect, but they're good enough in the NFC East. I've been watching football for going on 12 years now. And I just want to say, I've never seen something so off center or obnoxious as the football team's last five games to their season. I mean, how does that happen? How does that happen? I, it, it actually makes no sense there. It, like, no sense at all. I mean, the odds of that are, I don't even, I don't, low beyond our imaginations. I'll leave it at that. So, but, I mean, yeah, you made some great points about the Washington football team and the NFC East. This division is completely asinine and has been for, you know, a long time, and, you know, the football team, I mean, when they beat Tampa a few weeks ago, it sort of opened our eyes and we're like, all right, Tampa, do we have reason to worry about them? But then they beat Carolina, Seattle, and Vegas, none of whom are really bad teams. None of them are good teams, don't get me wrong, but none of them are, you know, on the level of Jacksonville or Houston or the, even the Jets. So, I mean, I don't think we can throw in the towel with them, certainly not. The odds are certainly stacked against them, that's for sure. But, I mean, if they can beat Dallas twice, they've got a fighting chance. I, I mean, I think they have more than a fighting chance. I think this game we, this weekend is crucial. they got to be able to beat Dallas on their home turf. 
it's crucial, although it's not do or die because of their schedule. I, I mean, it'll say a lot about their team, what they do in that game, because if, you know, they roll up to FedEx Field and they're just not ready to play, I don't like their odds against Dallas three weeks down there. And also, down keep in long. mind that in addition to two matchups with the football team, the Cowboys have a matchup with the Arizona Cardinals on January 2nd, so that'll be one to watch for certain. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I I would still tend to bet on the Cowboys winning that division just because so much of the NFL is the quarterback position, and it's like, who are you betting on? Are you betting on Dak Prescott, Tyler Heineke, or Jalen Hurts? Or, or even, Gardner even, Minshew, or even Gardner Minshew now. Exactly. So I, I still like the Cowboys, but I think the door is certainly open, maybe just a creek, but it, it's open for the football team. Really quick, before we move on, if you're Nick Sirianni, who are you starting, Jalen Hurts or Minshew Mania? It's got to be uh, – why I, I don't understand why this is a discussion. Uh, Hurts is far from perfect, and I don't think he's necessarily a franchise guy. But when you're this deep into the season, I don't understand how you could move to Minshew – in the midst of a divisional wild card race, you know, Hertz is a guy that has not been perfect, but he's shown flashes all season long. And I think when his play on the field maybe isn't as good, he's a leader. He's still a leader at the end of the day. So I'm still enrolling with Jalen Hurts. I mean, Mitchu played well the other day. That's all I'll say about that. I'm not going to. He did. He did. I'm not going to go around praising Gardner Minshew as a. Oh, starting quarterback, but I mean, at the same time, I mean, why not give the kid a chance? Here's the thing I will say, Liam, is I think that in a lot of Philly fans' heads, they're thinking the backup quarterback won us a Super Bowl (laughs) last time. Let's roll with Minshew this time. That's where I ask the logic. I don't think, like I said, I don't think Jalen Hurts is anything special, but neither is Gardner Minshew. So... All right, well, I'm I'm sorry. We have to do this, but, you know, and, it's, and I feel sorry because it was against your team, the Vikings, but we have to give love to the Detroit Lions for finally pulling out that last-second miracle win on Sunday. Shout-out to our guy, P.J. Clark. It's been a rough first season in Detroit for him, as well as Dan Campbell, but, hey, the Detroit Lions, how about them? Oh, Liam. Liam, Liam, Liam. This was a uh, this was a tough game for me as a Vikings fan. And all I got to say is, all credit goes to the Lions. I think that's where the attention should focus on this one because at the end of the day, the Lions are a team who have been on the cusp of winning football games all season long. I think prior to the Vikings game, they had two games in which they lost on game-winning field goals, uh, and a couple more where they lost by one possession. Dan Campbell has been right there with a team that, frankly, is not great. So I I think that uh, commend Detroit for winning that game. And for the Vikings, there's not much to say. Uh, I mean, they have, I can't even explain it. They have legitimately been like one of the worst teams to follow ever because every single week they come in They play well in the first half. They hold a lead, and then they choke. And we almost saw it on Thursday night against the Steelers. They almost set an NFL record. If the Steelers would have came back in that game, it would have been the largest deficit ever overcome. You can thank Chase Claypool for that, by the way. 
What's that? You can thank Chase Claypool for that win, by the way. That that was fantastic. The Steelers are uh, kind of like the AFC version of the Vikings. It was just like two dumpster fire squads in that one. So uh, definitely happy with uh, Chase Claypool's celebration antics, whatever you want to call them, uh, with 36 seconds left in the game. But the Vikings, I, I could truly have a dissertation on the Minnesota Vikings and what they've been this year, which I will save that from you, uh, Liam. But it wasn't good. It wasn't good, and they're going to need a lot of change in the offseason. Oh, no, I mean, I remember being in your vicinity during that game the other day because we were working the women's basketball game together, and I can only imagine what was going through your poor head. But I do have some sympathy for the Lions because they've lost the games in a lot of wonky ways. You know, they had that they almost pulled off a massive comeback against San Fran. The Justin Tucker game, don't get me started with that. That that's a game that nine out of ten times they win. They lost to Minnesota by two back in week five, lost to LA by seven, tied with Pittsburgh, then in the two weeks after that, lost to Cleveland by three, and lost to Chicago by two. And then they finally got the job done and beat Minnesota. And one thing I've noticed about this Lions locker room is, yeah, they're not great, but Dan Campbell seems to have gotten through to them. I mean, these players yeah. seem like they will run through a wall through them, and that is something I really, really appreciate. And I think all NFL fans should, because it's not often you see that in a coach. I mean, there are several players out there that really, really despise Bill Belichick. Yeah, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of guys that, like you said, Bill Belichick. But even if you don't like him, you got to respect his process. So uh, I don't, I don't know that I'd go comparing Dan Campbell and Bill Belichick, especially <laughs> as far as success rates in Super Bowls. Dare I say? Um, but I, I do think that Dan Campbell in that Lions Vikings game especially given the recent events that had happened in Michigan, even as a Vikings fan, it, it was almost, you know, it, it was touching to see Dan Campbell celebrating with Jared Goff, the whole city of Detroit, the whole state of Michigan, uh, and winning a football game. Yeah, all right. So I know you're not a big NBA guy, but there is one thing I want to touch on. It is that with the exception of the Brooklyn Nets, the Chicago Bulls, and the Milwaukee Bucks, at this point in time, the NBA Eastern Conference appears to be nothing short of mediocre. Yeah. Because the fourth-seeded Miami Heat and the 12th-seeded New York Knicks are separated by three games. And in the middle of that, you've got more mediocrity with Washington, Philly, Boston, Atlanta, to name a few. It's just an incredibly weak Eastern Conference. And, you know, I think this sort of proves something I was talking about with one of my buddies earlier this week, and that, that the NBA is truly Golden State, Phoenix, and then everybody else. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because the Eastern Conference has kind of been ragged on for a couple of years now. And the last two years, you started to see the resurgence of the Eastern Conference. You saw, you saw a team in the heat come out as a five seed make it to the nba finals and you know the knicks made a little bit of noise i know uh new york fans were excited at the beginning of the year but you come to 2021 
and there's not too much to get excited for. The Brooklyn Nets are getting it done. Uh, Milwaukee Bucks are getting it done. Chicago is the one team that I don't think people had on their radar that have surprised and been pretty successful. So uh, I think that's the one trophy to really behold in the Eastern Conference. Uh, but other than that, like you mentioned, nobody's impressed. In fact, everybody has kind of been either disappointing or right where everybody thought they would be. So Eastern Conference, a little bit of a down year. And I think when it gets down to the nitty gritty, like you said, it's Nets Bucks. I, I still don't see the Bulls as a legitimate threat in a playoff series against Giannis or KD and James Harden. Uh, so it's certainly a little bit of conundrum that the Eastern Conference has, although still a lot of season left. And if the Bulls keep playing like they do, I think they're the the interesting team to follow because if they keep winning games, how are we one to judge them? Like, uh, if they're winning games at the end of the day, we got to give them a shot. I'm still not convinced yet, but they're the one team that I'd look out for where it's like, who knows? Maybe Chicago really is that good. You know... I had them being better than a lot of the media people thought they were going to be. I didn't think they were going to be this good. I mean, second yeah. in the East? Are you kidding me? That's a that's a standard that few teams can make, let alone in a year after missing the playoffs. I mean, Chicago didn't even make the play in, and yeah, they splashed in the offseason adding DeRozan and Lonzo, but I mean... Still, that's a pretty big jump to make. I think a lot of credit needs to go to their head coach, who, by God, I'm blanking on, Billy Donovan, who left OKC, was I believe took a year or two off, went to join Chicago, and he's just taking this roster to new heights. And Billy Donovan is one of the most underrated coaches in the NBA. And I'll throw it back yeah. to the bubble year. What he did with that Oklahoma City roster was unbelievable. That roster wasn't even supposed to make the playoffs. And they take the Rockets to seven in the first round. So, yeah, I think the overarching message with that is Billy Donovan is the coach of the year, hands down, at this point in time. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. And, you know, I think that in the same vein, saying that there's only two teams in the Eastern Conference, you can say that there's some team to come out of that mix and really grab a spot in the Eastern Conference. So it'll be interesting down the stretch in the playoffs to see if there's a team that can kind of come from one of those lower teams. We're talking about the Miamis. We're talking about the Bostons. We're talking about the New York. Some of those teams that have not played like we thought they would and come up to the top. Certainly. All right. Time for the history lesson, boys and girls, where we honor great achievements of the past in the coming week. 62 years ago today, December 11th, the New York Yankees pulled off a trade to acquire Roger Maris from the Dodgers. What a trade it was. Maris hit 61 homers in 1961, a record that stood until 1998. Well, no, given the circumstances of the record breakers, in my eyes, that's still the record. Yeah, Liam, that, that was certainly a great record right there. But if we go 38 years ago, from Monday, December 13th. The highest scoring game in NBA history took place. Detroit took down Denver in triple overtime by, get this, Liam, a mind-boggling score of 186 to 184. I hope you bet the over in that one. <laughs> I'm not a betting man. so And also, I wasn't alive back then. So 
Fair enough, fair enough. Well, two years ago, Wednesday, December 15th, marks the end of an era in, an, in the NFL. The Raiders played their final game in Oakland, California, the franchise that just seemingly keeps on moving. Of course, over the past two seasons, the franchise has taken up headquarters at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. It's only a matter of time before they're shipped off to London. Yeah, I'm totally with you with that one, Liam. But if we go 77 years ago, so we're really going to blast to the past on this one. Friday, December 17th, the Green Bay Packers beat the Giants 14-7 to to win the league title. The significance of this one in particular, though, it was Curly Lambeau's final title as Packers head coach. The Packers Stadium, of course, named Lambeau Field in his honor. So for all Green Bay fans out there, uh, a big day, a big weekend for you guys. A.K.A. not Noah Searson. All right, show's yeah, almost over. So it's time for who you got. We start in the college basketball realm. Tonight, the Houston Cougars take on the Alabama Crimson Tide. I believe that is a 14-9 matchup. And what a matchup it is, Noah. It is 14 versus 9. Excuse me, I don't know why Alabama is having a game start at 10 p.m. Eastern time. I believe that's 9 p.m. in Tuscaloosa, but it still feels kind of late. Anyway, the game's on ESPN2. Who you got? Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. Two squads that I really believe in all season long and especially going into the tournament. Uh, In this one, I'm going to go with Bama. They're the hot squad that have back-to-back wins against legitimate squads, dominating Miami, and then, of course, the big win against Gonzaga. And I think they just have simply too much veteran presence, too much depth. I love Jordan Shackelford. I love Kalen Ellis. I love what the Crimson Tide are doing. So give me Bama over Houston. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, one of the things about Houston, or one of the doubts about Houston going into the tournament last year was their lack of a strong schedule. And, you know, they were able to make that run to the Final Four, and then they got knobsocked by Baylor in that game because they had only played double digit seats to get there. So I think this is good for Houston. Matching up with a top-tier opponent like Alabama is a good early season test. They lost to Wisconsin in the Jim Maui Invitational, but the Badgers were a better team, are a better team than we thought they were back then. So, and, you know, matchups with Virginia, Butler, Oregon. I mean, yeah. But I got Alabama. Just... All right, well, next up, another just as big, probably bigger matchup between 6th-ranked Villanova, 2nd-ranked Baylor, 3 o'clock Sunday on ABC. One of the matchups of the year for certain. Yeah, uh, we broke this down pseudo, I guess, earlier, Liam. Uh, I'm going to go with the Baylor Bears. I think that for too long this season, they've been slept on as far as what they can do. We talked about Akinjo. Uh, You also want to talk about the play of LJ Cryer, somebody who has really established himself as a scorer for the Bears. Uh, I think that they've got the veteran presence. They've got the scoring. And... I think this is going to be a really fun matchup because it's really two squads that boast the top things that we're talking about in terms of offensive veteran presence. Cause you can talk about the wildcats and talk about Colin Gillespie uh, and kind of some of those also younger, fresher faces on the team. So it'll be a close one, but I got the bears. Like I said, they're my number one team in the country right now. Leah. You ready for this? So last March, <coughs> Excuse me. 
Baylor beat Villanova in the Sweet 16. If you're telling me that's not lingering in the back of the Wildcats' minds right now, you're sadly mistaken. I'm a believer in the law of percentages. I haven't taken a statistics class in two years. I believe in that. Villanova shot 13 of 50 against Syracuse from beyond the arc. That is a 26% clip. The Wildcats are a much better shooting team than that. And they're going to show it tomorrow because they also won't be playing against a 2-3 zone like they had to do against Syracuse the other night. I've got the Villanova Wildcats winning this game in upset fashion. I'm probably going to be proven wrong by Baylor, but I've got the Wildcats winning. Wow. wow. I'm going so upset. We're, we're, we're splitting on that one. We are splitting on that one. All right, well, last one. This is a tough one for you because you probably hate both these teams' guts. It is Bears-Packers, Sunday Night Football this week. Who you got? Packers. I, I don't even have to explain this one. All you got to say is, not even say, just show is the Aaron Rodgers, I own you video clip from their first matchup this season. Packers rolling this one. Chicago ain't worth a dime. I agree wholeheartedly. The Green Bay's a better team. They're going to have the home field advantage Sunday night. Chicago, to be frank, stinks. This game should be flexed out of Sunday night for Dallas and Washington, but they're playing on Sunday night in a few weeks when they play at Jerry World. Yeah, give me the Packers. I don't think you need much more explanation than that. And that'll do it. Noah, my friend, it's been so awesome having you on. I know it took a little while longer than we would have liked because we both got sick at some point but yeah here we are i know here we are uh thanks so much for having me on and uh hopefully we can do it again at some point absolutely for noah searson i'm liam griffin give us a follow on the gram at full court pest podcast and on twitter at full cp podcast that's f-u-l-l-c-p podcast and if you want to be sitting where noah's sitting get in contact with me we'll make it happen we'll be back next saturday catch you then